just a few moments, I'm going to read you some verses from Psalm 27. And before I do that, I just want us to think about our lives for a moment. It seems like we've entered this new year with an awful lot of uncertainty. I don't know about you, but it feels that way to me. Uh, whether it's political stuff going on or things that are happening in Australia with fires or whatever, it just seems like there's a lot of uncertainty everywhere. Um, don't even know what to expect, it seems, from day to day. And that's true because we live in a broken world and we are broken people. And one of the reasons why we worship and we need to worship God and we need to hear from God is that he is really our only safe place. He is our refuge. He is the one who's in control. He is the one that we can find hope in. Hear this from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This year, if you're just joining with us or if you've forgotten, uh, we are going to go through the Bible together. And so our hope for this whole 2020 year is to spend time looking through each book of the Bible, almost every book of the Bible, but to see the storyline of the scriptures. And to reiterate what's been said before last week and other venues and parts of our church, uh, we want you to understand that the Bible is a four-part story. Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. And this year, we're going to look at that four-part story the whole year as we go through the Bible. And it's really important because oftentimes we have been taught or we think that the story of the Bible is a two-part story, that it's just about the fall or rebellion and redemption. But there's actually a whole lot that goes before that and a lot that comes after that. And so we want to see that four-part story played out in full over the whole course of the scriptures. And the reason why it's so important for you and for me on every day of our lives is because that four-part story is what makes sense of the world. You eliminate one of those four, you forget about one of those four, you try to have an alternative way to think about reality, it just doesn't work. Like the most consistent, internally coherent way to look at the world is through that four-part story. So we want to work that, out, work that out over the year. The second thing I'd tell you before I read is just to remind you that what we find in the first part of Genesis is really God's vision and his plan for his people. That we would love him, that we would love others, and that we would love the place where he has put us. This is why if you look on the front of the bulletin, it says, love God, love people, love the city. Because we see that as our human way to express what God has laid out in the Bible from the beginning. That we're to love him, love others, and love place. So I hope that reminds you a little bit of things you've heard before. And I hope that sets the stage for me reading you this chapter, Genesis chapter 3. It's a story that is very different from the first two chapters. But there's an awful lot of hope in this chapter. Even as dark as it may seem when I read it, there's a lot of hope in this chapter. So listen to this. See if this doesn't help explain 
all of reality, your reality, mine, everything. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to, to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You shall desire, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Familiar story? You've heard a little bit about that, but a little bit about a little bit of that before, maybe. Well, let's let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Lord, <clears throat> we thank you that you are God and that we're not even though so often we try to be and want to be. We thank you that you speak. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you address and make sense of the world that we live in. 
So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take this truth and make sense of our lives in ever-deepening ways, that we would learn, that we would learn more about a God who loves us, that we would learn more about a God who's provided for us, that we would learn more how by grace we can live in a way that makes sense and that pleases you. And we pray this, of course, with confidence and hope because we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to do something a little bit different this morning. I want to give you the takeaways on the front end. I want to give you five takeaways from this sermon. So hopefully you can think about these as we go through the sermon. And if you would, reflect on them throughout the week. So I'm going to give you these takeaways on the front end. Then I'll give you the outline. And then we'll dive into the text itself. Sound okay? So here's where we're going. Five takeaways. These are no, in no particular order. Um, and I hope you will ponder these and reflect on these, especially as we look through the text together. Uh, takeaway number one. You will not be able to fully understand yourself until you come to grips with Genesis 3. You will not be able, I will not be able to understand myself until I come to grips with Genesis chapter 3. If you want to jettison Genesis 3, I promise you, you will never be able to fully understand who you are and what's going on. Number two, and this is a takeaway that doesn't just apply this week but starts here, that goes for the rest of the year, something I hope you'll chew on. Um, Takeaway number two is this. Let's divide the Bible in the right place. If we want to understand the Bible the way God intends us to understand the Bible, then let's divide the Bible at the right place. What I mean by that is this. The Bible is divided between Genesis 1 and 2, and Genesis 3 through Revelation 22. And if we miss that, we will misunderstand a lot of the Bible and what it's about and what it's saying. And for those of you that might be theological nerds or interested in philosophy and deeper theological things, I'm going to talk to you just for a moment. And for those of you that don't care about this stuff, check out. Don't even listen to this because it won't make any sense to you. But those of you that are theological nerds, I just want to be very blunt. I want to use big words because I know there's some of you that are interested in this. Dispensational theology cannot exist unless you divide the Bible between the Old Testament and New Testament. If you divide the Bible at the wrong place, you are going to completely misunderstand the Bible. Dispensationalism, which a lot of us perhaps grew up in or were exposed to, it is predicated on dividing the Bible between Old Testament and New Testament. And I'm here to tell you, that is not how God divides the Bible. So that's for all you theological nerds that are interested in talking more and want to explore that. Just want to throw that out there. It is vital that we divide the Bible properly. Back to those of us that aren't nerds. If you want to understand the Bible and you divide it this way, then this sermon is going to help lay the groundwork for everything else in the entire Bible. So when we talk about rebellion and we talk about redemption, which we're going to do today, understand this chapter is telling you what is in the rest of the Bible. 
And if we don't follow the pattern of the way God writes things, if we don't understand how he demarcates things between creation and the first two chapters and the beauty of that and then everything else, we'll misunderstand the Bible. But if we get this right, then we'll understand everything that God has written for us. Doesn't mean perfectly, doesn't mean, I mean, I still got questions, let me tell you. But at least this gives us a proper framework from which to understand what God's saying. All right, I've belabored that too much. Takeaway number two. That, here's takeaway number three. Uh, this chapter, this sermon, should make us compassionately relatable. If this chapter begins to come to life in us, it will make us compassionately relatable. We should be, uh, those of us that follow Jesus, we should be able to relate to anyone, anytime, anywhere who's been through anything. We ought to never have the mentality of us first them. That shouldn't exist in our lives and shouldn't exist in the church. It shouldn't. And if you've been through that, I'm so sorry. And the only way to change that is to get the gospel deeper into us. And if we understand this, then we should be compassionately relatable to everyone. Four, this passage should also make us um, utterly realistic. You know, sometimes in the church you get all this rah-rah stuff. And it kind of, you know, maybe it doesn't rub you the wrong way, but it rubs me the wrong way. As if to say, claim all this, name all that, own all this. As if we aren't all heading toward death. <laughs> Maybe that doesn't make sense to you. I'm sorry, perhaps I shouldn't have said that. This passage makes us utterly realistic of what we can expect in the world, what we can expect from one another, what we should expect for ourselves in life. Utterly realistic. And the fifth one is this, that we're a people of hope. We have real hope in the midst of being utterly realistic, in the midst of being compassionately relatable. We have hope. We have hope. So I hope that you'll see all of those this morning as we go through this text together. So there's my takeaways. Hopefully you can follow, think about those or wrestle with those. You can come up to me and talk to me about some of those if you'd like. I'm happy to expand more. Uh, here's the outline of how we're going to approach Genesis 3. Three points. Um, rebellion, intervention, and redemption. So we're already starting to hit on two parts of the four-part story. You know, you put last week together this week. We've already talked about creation. So here we are covering three out of four points. This week we're going to look at rebellion, intervention, and redemption. All right? So here's how we can get into this text. Moving from Genesis 1 and 2, which John Paul talked about last week, moving from Genesis 1 and 2 and into Genesis chapter 3 is really moving from a world that we've never known, Genesis 1 and 2, to the only world we've ever known. So this, this chapter, what we're going to talk about should have all kinds of just, it should trigger all kinds of things inside of us. Because we know this world so experientially, so deeply. And that's why I want to ask you this question and answer it as we work out this passage. Why do we all feel, why do we all feel the need to hide? Have you ever thought about that? 
Why in the world do we all feel the need to hide? We all do. JP talked about running from God last week. The reason why we all run from God is because we all want to hide. We all want to hide. We know something is profoundly wrong. Um, So here's how I want to illustrate this, and I want to invite you into this illustration. I want you to imagine with me, and I'm going to have to look at my notes more today because I've got to trim stuff down because I don't want to be here all afternoon, so I apologize for that, but I've got to stay on task here. I want you to imagine with me, I want you to get into this illustration of why do we all hide? I want you to imagine that you got a speeding ticket, and instead of paying $500 for that speeding ticket, instead of the consequences being that you have to pay a $500 fine, The consequence is this. You have to stand at the corner of Evans and Greenville Boulevard for six hours without clothes. I want you to imagine that. Now, those of you that are either young, if if you're a young child and think about that, you might think, well, that is weird. Why would you say that? And I totally get it. And if you're in middle school or high school and you're thinking, you might be thinking to yourself, I am embarrassed for you to say that, Dave. <laughs> Pastor, how in the world could you say that? I want to I run straight out of this building. I get that too. And if you're here and you're thinking, that is a radically inappropriate illustration, let me tell you, there's an awful lot of me that agrees with you. But I want to know why does that sound, why does that consequence sound so horrific to you? Why is it that you would much rather pay, I would rather pay a $500 fine than stand at the corner of Evans and Greenville Boulevard for six hours? Why? Why does that sound so horrific? Why does that sound inappropriate? My hunch is because you know that if you were to do that, that uh, people would exploit you. My hunch is it freaks you out just like it freaks me out because if you stood out there for six hours People would just make fun of you, stare at you, whatever, right? You see, what's going on is that those are all variations on this one idea. None of us feel fully accepted. All of us feel radically, radically insecure in a really deep way. We know that we are not okay We know that there's something deep down within that indicates that we are not okay. Things are really messed up. That's why we don't ever really want to be fully known. We're afraid of rejection. We know that there's something wrong with us, so we don't want people staring at us, exploiting us, making fun of us. As a matter of fact, that thought and that illustration does seem really inappropriate, doesn't it? Because that's not the way we should live. We shouldn't live in a way that's that open. By the way, this is not Dave arguing for a nudist colony, okay? Not that at all. I'm just trying to illustrate the point that we know the contents of Genesis 3 because we live it out every day. We all know that we're not enough, and we all know that there's something deeply wrong. So let me show you what that is. Look how Genesis 3 opens up with rebellion. Here you have the serpent, and what does he do? 
well, he's really crafty. You can tell there's a sinister overtone from the beginning of this chapter. And what the serpent does is he targets Eve. And he comes to Eve and he begins to talk with her. But let me let you in on a couple secrets about this that don't exactly come out clearly in the English but are in the original. If you go back through and read the first six verses, you know where it says things like, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? All those pronouns in the first six verses where Satan is addressing Eve, they're all plural. And that means that he is, he's targeting Eve, but Adam's there. It means that he's actually saying, did God actually say y'all shouldn't eat of the tree of the garden? Every time it's plural. And to press that home even more, look in verse 6. Look at this little phrase at the end of verse 6 in which it says this. Um, and she also gave some to her husband. Look at it. Who was what? With her. When Satan tempted Eve, he targeted her. But guess who was there? Adam. He heard everything that Satan said. Everything. Made me wonder why in the world would... Satan target Eve. Maybe it's because of this. If you go back and read Genesis chapter 2, what you'll find is that God gave the command of where Adam should eat and where he shouldn't eat. Eve wasn't alive yet. It was after God gave the explicit command to Adam that God then put Adam to sleep and then formed the woman. In other words, Eve didn't hear the command straight from God's mouth herself. In other words, it's possible that the serpent noticed that Adam was already not doing his job, that he had not communicated with his wife like he should. He was not open with her like he should have been. He was not doing his job like he should do. And so he thought, I'm going to attack this person because they seem to be weaker. They're not aware of everything like the man is. And here's Adam himself like, Hiding, lurking right there. And what is he saying? Nothing. Isn't that interesting? Now here's the essence of temptation. The essence of temptation is this. To suggest that there are new possibilities. That's the heart of temptation. Whenever temptation comes into your life, whenever you face it, and we all face it every day, the heart of temptation is saying, but... Here's, here's a suggestion. Maybe there are different new, maybe there are other possibilities. Look at what Satan says to Eve in verse 1. Did God actually say? Let me tell you, Satan wasn't questioning whether or not God actually said it. It was factually true and he knew it. It was sort of like this. I love Five Guys, okay? I love Five Guys cheeseburgers. Now, I realize you can go to some Five Guys and they're better than others, but on the, in the you know, on a level, I like Five Guys cheeseburgers. Now, if you came up to me and you said, Dave, do you actually like Five Guys cheeseburgers? You wouldn't so much be questioning the truth that I like Five Guys cheeseburgers, right? You would be suggesting that there may be other possibilities out there for you, right? That's exactly what Satan was doing with Adam and Eve. He was suggesting that there were other possible things out there for them. And then he gets real emotional. If you look at the other things that Satan says to Eve, 
he ends up saying, Eve, you won't surely die. Did you notice that? You're not going to die. He's appealing to her. He's, he's saying to her, her, he's saying to Adam, and remember, he's in the background. He's like, Satan is saying, Eve, look, this won't happen. Your life is really in your hands. It's not in God's hands. It's in yours. As a matter of fact, Eve, God knows that if you eat this fruit, you're going to be like him. You see, he's appealing so deeply to her emotions of how she feels about herself and how she could function in her life. And, and he ends up saying, look, don't you understand this whole thing that God has said to you? It's a scam. It's how God wants to hold you down. If you follow what God says and if you submit to God, you'll never be the person you could be, and God knows it. The only way for you to reach your full potential is for you to take your life into your own hands and do what you want to do. Because God just doesn't want you to be like him. He's suggesting that there are new possibilities. Look how Eve takes all this in. Look at verse 6 and verse 7. That tells you how she internalizes this temptation. Satan questions God, makes these suggestions of maybe there are other possibilities out there. And this is what Eve says. She now looks at the fruit and says, oh, this fruit looks good for food. You get that? What, she th what she's thinking is this. Huh. I think I'm the one that can decide what I should eat and what I shouldn't eat. I think I'm the one that can look at this fruit and say, no, it's good. Maybe it's even more than that in which she is realizing, you know what? This is actually really simple. If I take this fruit that I think is good and I can express my, my uh, self-sufficiency, then I'm going to be the one that can determine who I am. I don't want to listen. I want to do what I want. And then it's not just that she sees that the, that the fruit is good for food. She actually sees that it is delightful to the eyes. Do you notice that? It's very poetic the way that it's written, Right? Here she is thinking to herself, you know what? This fruit looks great. It seems to simplify my life. If I just take this fruit and I do what I want, then I will be able to step away from God. As a matter of fact, I'll be actually equal with God. I'll be exactly who I want to be and do exactly what I want to do. And then the third thing, she actually says it's desirable to make one wise. You see how she's looking at this possibility now? Now the fruit is a way in which she can assert her selfishness and self-centeredness. It's a way she can assert her independence. It's a way that she and Adam can now say, we don't need you, God. We're good. We can make it. You did the creation. Thanks. Now it's whatever we want to do. Because desirable to make one wise, remember she doesn't understand what evil is. The moment that she eats the fruit and acts contrary to God is the moment in which she begins to understand sin and death and rebellion. She doesn't know what that's like. So she looks at the fruit and said, I can grow in experiential wisdom by eating this fruit. 
I can, my mental capacities can increase. I can have more experiential knowledge after eating this fruit than I can before. So I want that. Because if I, I don't just want to understand what it means to be good, I want to know what good and evil is. So she takes it, right? And Adam takes it. Look at verse 7. I think it says what? Their eyes, the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. You see, that the heart of temptation is the suggestion that there are new possibilities out there. And you know that all the time in your life. You know how someone can offer you a job, and it is a temptation, right? Even though it may sound great, it might just be a temptation for you to satisfy yourself and live for yourself. Or it could be a really good thing of God providing something. We live with this kind of stuff all the time. So if that's the heart of temptation, here's the heart of sin. The heart of sin is us trying to be God. Whenever we're deciding on our own what we think, what we think is right and wrong, whenever we're deciding on our own what we think we should do, whatever we're determining about reality, Apart from God, looking at the world apart from how God says it, that's all sin. And Adam and Eve sinned, and then they knew that they were naked, and they were ashamed. And verse 7 and 8 tell you that they even tried to hide from God, and they went among the trees as if they could hide from God. And this is where the intervention comes in. Remember, rebellion, this is rebellion. Now we're moving into intervention. It should be no surprise that as Adam and Eve run away from God and try to hide, God pursues. Isn't that great? Look how verse 8 starts out. And God came in the cool of the day and started walking in the garden, something to that effect. I mentioned this at 830, that reading that verse means a lot to me because it says that God walked in the garden like he had been doing every other day. This was no different from God. He was doing what he always does, walking in the garden, pursuing Adam and Eve, pursuing his creation. It could have said that he stormed into the garden, couldn't it? It could have said he stomped into the garden, couldn't it? But it said he walked into the garden just like he always had done. And he came after Adam and Eve in the best possible way, and he started asking them questions. Look at verse 9. Where are you, Adam? Do you think God didn't know where he was? Why would God ask this question? Because God is always trying to draw us out. He's asking you questions all the time. This one question right here, God's still asking that. Where are you today? Where are you? Where are you emotionally? Where are you in your life? Where are you with your dreams? Where are you with your hopes? Where are you with your struggles? Where are you with your grief? Where are you? God's trying to draw out what is inside you. He never stops asking this question, and he'll never stop. He's always pursuing to commune with you and to hear what's going on and have you verbalize that, for you to say that. That's how amazing he is. So he asks Adam, where are you? And then he even says to him, Adam responds, and then God says, well, you know, who told you you were naked? 
Then Adam responds and God says, oh, did you do what I told you not to do? And that also is very profound. Because when God says, did you do what I told you not to do? It reminds us that when we rebel against God, it's not just breaking the rules. This is why God says, I, Adam, did you do what I told you not to do? Everything about that is communicating relationship and love. Everything about that is saying to us, sinning is not just doing the wrong thing. Sin is not just breaking the rules, it's breaking God's heart. It's God coming to you and saying, have you done what I said not to do? Like what we talked about? And of course, Adam is crushed, right? So is Eve. That's why they're hiding. That's why they feel ashamed. It's why they don't know what to do. And it's not just that God pursues them. It's that God... In his intervention, look at what he does. Do you realize if you go back and read the text, verses 13 and following, that you'll find that God doesn't curse Adam and he doesn't curse Eve? I don't know how long I was under the impression that God cursed Adam and Eve, but he really didn't. If you go back and read the text, what you'll find is that God curses the serpent because of Eve. And God curses the ground because of Adam. And it doesn't mean that we don't have the consequences of our rebellion. We absolutely do, but we aren't cursed. We're broken and rebellious, and we're subject to all kinds of things that we'll get to. But God curses Satan. God curses the ground. You see, what God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2 remains. What did he tell them? Be fruitful and multiply, right? And subdue the earth, right? Well, now what's going to happen? Well, now our work in subduing the earth is full of pain and hardship and grief and sorrow and disappointment. Sound familiar? Sound like your career? Just curious. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe that makes sense of a lot of things that have happened in your life and your job. Those of you that have had children, um, how is that on the painful scale? I mean, we live in the 21st century, right? And there are all kinds of medicines that are used to help minimize pain. I mean, you can even schedule pretty much your delivery, right? And yet, wow, there's a lot of pain. Before, during, after, and then on into parenting. Like there's pain everywhere, right? It's hard everywhere, isn't it? So why do we have these expectations of, well, I'll just take all this and everything will be great and smooth? Oh, it just doesn't work that way. Why do we expect so much from our jobs? God's saying from the beginning, it's going to be hard. And yet we still keep thinking, oh, no, this should be easy. Having children, God, I just think this is such a gift. It should be so easy. And God's like, no, there are real consequences of the fall. There are real consequences of the rebellion. And one of them is you're going to feel pain all over the place. You're going to be sad. It's going to hurt. 
because it's going to drive you out of yourself. And we always want to cling to ourselves and what we want and our plans and our power and how we can make things work and how we think that we can plot a life that's without pain. And newsflash, it's not that way. That's exactly what God said. You see, we're living in a world now in which we ought to assume that there's going to be kind of conflict everywhere. I'm not saying that to make you paranoid at all. It's just if you think that we, if we think we can live in a world without conflict, it just isn't going to happen. If you think you can have children without any pain whatsoever before, during, after, or post taking them home, taking their children home from the hospital, it's not going to work. Are there glorious things? Yes. Good things? Yes. We're going to get to that. But the realism is real. This is true. And notice what else God does. It's not just that he makes all these pronouncements. He promises redemption. Look at verse 15. Rebellion, intervention, and now look at redemption. God says, I will put enmity, I will put division between you and the woman. God is the first prophetic voice in the Bible, and he says that he is going to put tension and conflict between those that spiritually descend from Satan and those who spiritually descend from Eve. It means there's spiritual battles going on. And it means that when God says that he would do this, let me tell you practically what that means. It means that he has made a decisive determination that sin and wickedness and rebellion will not win. When we rebelled against God, everything went off course. Everything, everyone, everywhere. And God is saying that is not the way it's going to be. God is interrupting all of that and saying, I am going to create an end to death and destruction and sin and rebellion. I am going to bring it to a stop. So even though we can anticipate hardship, even though we can anticipate pain, we also have to cling to the reality that things are nowhere near as bad as they could be. And all the bad stuff that's going on around us and within us and in the world and everywhere else is going to come to an end. Isn't that great? You actually have hope. You can look at conflict and work and you can say, yep, I should expect that to happen. And at the same time, you can say, and I can also have hope at work. You can look at how messed up your family may be and say, yep, I should have anticipated the struggles of marriage, the struggles of being single, the struggles of having children, the struggles of not having children, struggling with my parents, struggling with my neighbors. And you can say, yes, I should have anticipated that more, but I also have hope because God is at work. And right here, as soon as rebellion happened, he comes in and says, it won't have the last word. And then he illustrates it for us. Look at verse 20 and 21. He shows how it's not going to have the last word. He says to Satan in verse 15 that there's going to be someone who comes from the line of the woman. And he is going to crush the head of the serpent, but his heel is going to be bruised. Remember that? That's the coming of Jesus. 
And then Jesus illustrates what all that means so beautifully in verse 20 and 21. It says that God saw that they were naked, and so he killed animals and made skins and clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of animals. You notice that? Think about that. Adam and Eve rebelled. They're full of shame and guilt. They go and try to hide. God pursues. God's trying to draw out, what's going on in your life? What's going on in your life? And he knows that they're naked. And he knows that whatever they've sown and tried to create to cover themselves up doesn't work because it never does, right? You ever done anything wrong and then try to do enough right things to make it happen? You know, to like make it happen, meaning erase the bad stuff that you've done? It doesn't work, does it? Same thing here. God comes to them and he clothes them with animal skins, which means that God had to kill an animal to get the skins, which means God is communicating to Adam and Eve and to us that there has to be a substitute because we rebelled, that there must be something to pay a penalty for our rebellion against God. It means that this was the start in embryonic form of the coming of Christ. Not only prophesied in verse 15, but what he would do in verse 20 and 21. That he would be the final sacrifice. And that Adam and Eve wouldn't just be clothed in the skin of animals, but that they would have the righteousness of Jesus and be clothed in all of his perfection and in all of his obedience for all of our disobedience and all of our rebellion. It means that all the acceptance that we're trying to find through doing good things or not doing enough bad things is found in everything that Jesus has done. And that that is all by grace. Do you find Adam and Eve asking God to do anything here? They don't come to God and say, God, I really messed up. What can you do? They knew they messed up and they tried to hide. Sound familiar? And God says, hey, what's up? What's going on? Let me tell you about my son that's coming. His name is Jesus. And he'll be everything that you're not. So yes, my relationship with you is always based on performance. Just not yours. Because we mess it up. But the performance of Christ. His death in place of yours and mine. Now that's hope, isn't it? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you have loved us and lived the way that Adam and Eve did not live. Perfect obedience so that we would have your rightness and that, God, you would look at us not through Adam's disobedience and Eve's disobedience, but you would look at us through the obedience of Jesus. And God, we thank you that that you have given us Christ by grace, that we weren't even asking for it. Thank you for pursuing us and reminding us over and over that you're still there. And even amidst all of our insecurities about being accepted, that you have accepted us in Christ. So help us to take on Jesus afresh and live out what it means to have our righteousness in him. We pray in his name. Amen.
But don't leave here today without knowing that God's blessing is upon you, that the death of Jesus actually accomplished something for your everyday life. So receive this blessing and try by God's grace to live as if you actually believe it's true this week, meaning take what I'm about to say and bring it into your work, your home, wherever you are, bring it into your life. The Lord your God is a mighty God. He is in your midst, and he will save. This week, he will rejoice over you, and he'll also probably quiet you with his love. And in the age to come forever and ever, he will exult over you with loud singing, because our Christ is great. And he is alive. Amen. Go in peace.